If you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn to the book of Habakkuk. If you don't know where that is, that is in your Old Testament. One of the minor prophets, you could probably grab a table of contents and find Habakkuk. Just three short chapters, and that's going to be our main text, our main spot this morning. Now, as you're turning over there, just for my own, my own sake, for my own research, I just want to get an idea. So I'm going to ask you to raise your hand if this applies to you in just a second. But how many of you remember a time in life where you were alive, you knew what was going on, but there was no internet? I'm going to raise my hand on that. Okay, a lot of you. All right. How many of you never remember a time where you've been alive and there wasn't internet? Anybody? Okay, that, most of those people are at the retreat. We have a few of them that are here, but there's a, a youth retreat going on this weekend, and probably most of them are there. But the, some of us in this building, from, from the time that you can remember, there's been internet, even if it was a dial-up connection all the way up to this omnipresent Wi-Fi we seem to have with our cell phones everywhere. Uh, the internet has brought a lot of luxuries into our lives. I, I use technology, I use the internet all the time. Uh, so what I talk about this morning, just let me just say that to begin with, I'm not saying I think there's something inherently wrong with the internet or technology, but I was thinking about all the luxuries that we have that the internet has brought. I was thinking about moving to Longview and trying to find our way around. You know what we do when we say this is where we're going to eat, this is what store we're going to, we just type it into our phone and a voice from our phone tells us exactly where to turn and exactly how far we are away from that spot. And we don't even really have to think other than just typing it into our phone. It's almost like we can just put it in autopilot. So be careful if we're out there on the road because uh, we're just listening and just, you know, we're, we're just listening to whatever the GPS is telling us. The other day, Jessica was taking Addie, our daughter Addie, uh, across town. And she said that Addie said, Mom, you don't have your phone out. And she said, I don't need my phone. And Addie said, good job, Mom. You know how to get somewhere without your phone. <laughs> so my kids, that's all they're ever going to know is how much the Internet has guided us. But I remember a time where I was going somewhere. I'd pull out a road atlas. And then I'd have like a weird measuring thing, and I would measure how many miles away and pick out different roads I would turn on. Uh, and I barely remember how to do that because I don't have to anymore because the Internet has brought us certain luxuries. Uh, you see on this picture, there's, a, there's an old-timey-looking computer. Uh, before the Internet, we used computers, believe it or not. But nowadays, I don't even have to know how to spell something correctly. Because I can type up on a Word document. I can type up my sermon notes. Uh, if you're writing a paper for school, you can type up a paper, and it gives you a little squiggly line under the Word document if it's misspelled. And all you got to do is just right-click, and then boom, it spells it for you. So you don't even have to know how to spell anything. Because we have the internet, and we're, we're blessed. Uh, I remember a time where you go to the doctor, and you get a prescription. And they would scribble a bunch of chicken scratch on a little notepad, hand it to you, you'd give it to a pharmacist, and somehow they knew how to read what was on that paper and give you the right medicine. Now you go to the doctor, and they just say, we sent it over. And it's there. Uh, I remember a time where I never knew what the weather was going to be like because I didn't watch the news. So there was no way for me to know. I would just, each day was a surprise to me. But now I can just click on a weather app, and I can read the 15-day forecast. Not always accurate, but we have an idea of what's coming. Same thing with paying bills. I remember a time, and I still do this sometimes, where I actually get out a check and write a check and send it in somewhere. 
But most of the time, you can just type in some numbers on a card through the Internet, and it just takes money out of your account, and you never even have to do anything. But we used to have to maybe show up to a place and pay for it. So the, the Internet, modern technology, these devices that we have, they've brought a lot of conveniences for us, and that's a nice thing. Uh, in an island north of Canada called Aglulik, and if you've been to Aglulik and you think I'm mispronouncing that, then just let me know afterwards and I'll work on that. But Aglulik, I never even heard of it until I started researching this. Uh, up far, far north, and in the wintertime, it is a tough place to be. The average temperature is below 20 degrees. Uh, they go months without seeing the sun. Just miles and miles of ice and snow and frozen tundra. And these Inuit hunters have amazed explorers for years because they will leave their homes and travel far away to go hunting. But they don't use a map. They don't have anything to direct them. Because what's the point of a map? Because you might go somewhere and then overnight a trail will disappear because a snowstorm would come through. So they were able to find their way around and make their way back home because they just knew the land. They could measure the, the snowdrift patterns and animal behavior and read the stars, and they could travel far away, go hunting, and come back without any guidance. Nowadays, the number of incidents and deaths have increased because a lot of the hunters now rely on modern technology, and they carry around GPS devices. So it's made everything so much more convenient, but the problem is when they're out in the middle of nowhere and the GPS fails to work, they have not developed within them those wayfinding skills. So they get lost and maybe lose their life out in the middle of nowhere where hunters in the past, because they knew how to navigate around, they could make their way back home without a map, without GPS or anything. So when I think about our walk with Christ, and I think about this omni-technology that we have, I wonder if the same may be true for us. Because we always have screen or something available to us, is our ability to connect with God deteriorating? Because we're not cultivating and developing that within us because of the ease that we have. So one of the things I'm going to look at this morning and the weeks to come is how to put technology in its proper place. I think technology is great, I use it, but it needs to be put in its proper place. It doesn't need to control us. We use it it doesn't use us, it being technology. This morning, our topic is dethroning the noise God. Along with omnipresent technology is constant noise. So we're going to use Habakkuk as our key text. I'm going to span over these three chapters in Habakkuk, if you have that open. And then we're going to hone in on just a couple of verses from Habakkuk chapter 2. So let me just give you a little background on Habakkuk. But I just want to begin by reading... Chapter 1, verse 2. The prophet's complaint. It says, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not listen? Or cry to you violence, and you will not save? So chapter 1, verse 2 sounds a lot like a lament psalm. You can read the, the book of Psalms, and you can read these lament psalms like Psalm 13, verse 1. 
How long, O Lord, crying out to God? This is what Habakkuk is doing. He is offering a complaint before the Lord over the injustice that he sees happening to his people, the violence that he sees. And he's asking God, where are you? How long will you put up with this? We know very little about the prophet Habakkuk. We know that uh, there's a book in the Old Testament called Habakkuk. We know that Paul, in the book of Romans, the Hebrew writer, they quote Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 5. But other than that, we don't know much. There's an old book that's not included in our canon called Bell and the Dragon. It's about the story of Daniel, told from a, a legendary perspective. And this writer says that when Daniel was in the lion's den, Habakkuk was transported into the lion's den, offered Daniel a bowl of stew, and then was transported back to Judah. Now, obviously, that's, we don't view that as authoritative, but other than that writing, we really know very little about Habakkuk. So what we do know is he's one of the minor prophets, and he complains to God. And God speaks back to him. God responds to him. In verses 2 through 4 is Habakkuk's complaint. In verse 5 and following, God responds and he says, Look at the nations and see, be astonished, be astounded. For work is being done in your days that you would not believe, even if you were told. And then God goes on to tell him the rest of, or most of the rest of chapter 1, that he is going to use the Babylonians, this fierce and powerful nation, to carry out his purposes. That's the exact opposite of Habakkuk's complaint. That's not what he wanted to hear. What he wanted to hear is, I'm sorry you've had to put up with this. Let me come and rescue you. Instead, God says, that fierce and awesome and powerful army, the Babylonians, they're coming. And they're going to take over. So we assume that Habakkuk was written sometime before the book of Daniel because of that. So Habakkuk responds again to God and gives another complaint in verses 12 through 17 of chapter 1. Chapter 2, verse 1, the end of his second complaint, he says, I will stand at my watch post and station myself on the rampart. I will keep watch to see what he will say to me, and he will answer concerning my complaint. So he says, like a watchman in the night, I'm going to take my post, I've offered my complaint, and I'm going to wait for a response from God. And then God speaks again. And most of the rest of chapter 2 is God's response to Habakkuk, including several woes. And then chapter 3, which is the last chapter in the book, Habakkuk offers this prayer where he longs for the new exodus, but he's also willing to accept whatever it is that God does. So there is Habakkuk in a nutshell. Three chapters, pretty short. Uh, One of my first questions that that I ask when I read Habakkuk is this. How do you get God to respond to you like that? Have you ever thought that when reading, maybe the prophets, that God speaks to them? How does he get God to respond to him? Was it a voice, an audible voice that he heard? Was it a vision that he had? Was it an inner dialogue that he had in his mind and he just believed that was the Spirit talking to him? It doesn't tell us. But regardless, he has this communication, this back-and-forth communication with God. Amelia Earhart, 
probably, if you, if you don't remember that name from history, recently they came out with a picture where they think they might have seen her somewhere on some island or something like that. But on June 1st, 19, I believe 1937, she took off from Oakland, California with plans to fly around the world. She made it 22,000 miles. Uh, she landed to fuel up for the, the rest of the trip or the next leg of the trip. And she took off. And then that morning was the last time they heard from her. And they never found her plane. But they believe what happened was that her antenna broke off. And they could receive messages. Air traffic control could receive messages from her, but she could no longer receive messages. So she could send them, just not receive them. And when she could not hear back from air traffic control, she didn't know what decisions to make. If you're like me, maybe part of your life, your walk with God, your life as a disciple of Christ, maybe sometimes you feel like you can send messages all you want, you can pray all you want, read your Bible, come to church, but maybe sometimes you feel like you're not receiving messages. Maybe you're not connecting with God or hearing from God. Habakkuk chapter 2. This is going to be the main verse I want to focus on for the rest of this lesson. Habakkuk 2, verses 18 through 20. This is God speaking back to Habakkuk. And he says, What use is an idol once its maker has shaped it, a cast image, a teacher of lies? For its maker trusts in what has been made, though the product is only an idol and cannot speak. Woe to you who say to the wood, Wake up to the silent stone, rouse yourselves. Can it teach? See, it is gold and silver plated. And there's no breath in it at all. So he's referring to, in the ancient Near East, idol worship, or gods with a little g. Where human beings would actually carve out an image, an idol, and they would worship that idol. And God says, woe to you who does that because you're wasting your time. There's no breath, there's no life in those idols. You can speak to them all you want, but they're mute. Because they're not real, so they can't speak back to you. A few years ago, I traveled with some students from Harding University. We went to Dallas, the DFW area. Uh, they were taking a world religions class, so I, I went with them. And on a Friday, we went into a mosque. And we sat in a room, and we watched as Muslims came in the, for their Friday afternoon prayer time. Uh, we went into a Buddhist temple, where they showed us how they meditate. We took our shoes off because they believed it was a holy place, and we'd go in that temple, and there's a statue of the Buddha. And they took us to a Hindu temple in Dallas, in Irvine. And in this Hindu temple, we took our shoes off also because it was a holy place, according to them. And we walked in, and there was one room where they had these shrines set up, different idols. And you could actually pay homage to those idols. As I looked at those idols and people that actually came and paid money to them, I thought about God's words here from Habakkuk chapter 2. You could sit there and talk to them all you want, but they're never going to respond because there is no life in them. But look at what he says in chapter 2, verse 20. But the Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before Him. Central to the uniqueness of Yahweh was his spokenness, was his ability to communicate 
with people. Compared to the other ancient Near Eastern gods, to other Greek gods and goddesses, Yahweh, the God that we worship, communicates with human beings. We see that as he, here in Habakkuk. He communicates to Habakkuk. We see that throughout Scripture, there's times where he communicates through what he has created. You could look at creation, and through that, God communicates. That's Psalm 19, 1 through 4. We see that in Scripture, God communicates through teachers, through prophets, through apostles. He speaks a word through them. Through Scripture, we see that God communicates to people through circumstances. David says in Psalm 119, verse 71, that it's good for me to be humbled because through that I learn your law. Now, it doesn't mean that God causes all circumstances, but God uses circumstances to get through to us. But he also uses angels and dreams and visions. You read through the book of Acts and you see that God communicates through impressions of the Holy Spirit. You read the Old Testament and you see there was a time where God used a donkey to communicate. God used a burning bush to communicate to Moses. The point is, central to the uniqueness of God is that He communicates with His people. Idols might be mute, but God is not mute. He communicates. So He tells Habakkuk, the Lord is in His holy temple So the first thing that you should do when you come before the Lord is to be silent. So that indicates that maybe God has something to say. Maybe God has something to communicate if that's the first thing we should do when coming before the Lord. So in this crazy, busy, noisy world that we live in, I think we have to relearn, or maybe learn it for the first time, the art of attentiveness of learning to pay attention and to connect with God. A man named Andy Crouch wrote a book called TechWise Family. I highly recommend this book. Even if you don't agree with everything, every commitment that this man and his family made, it's an important book to read. Short book, you could read it quickly. But this man tells the story of he and his family. He has two kids, I believe. And the commitments they made to not let our devices become gods in our lives. So they made certain commitments. And I've read that book and highlighted certain things. And a lot of the book is influencing this sermon series. As I read through it, and I think about my own life, I think about iPhones and computer screens and TV screens, busy schedules, the stress of life. And in my case, two little kids who are pretty loud most of the day, there's a lot of noise. I don't know how it is for you and your life and your home, but we are surrounded by a lot of noise. Whether that's just noise by looking at a screen and being distracted by what's going on around us. In this book, Andy Crouch mentions that Apple came out with the iPhone in 2007. So he said, any kid that was born after 2007 has been competing for their parents' attentions with the screen. And for a lot of people who maybe are older, you may look at that and say, that's a shame that so many young people are addicted to their screens, but studies are now showing that even grandparents have an over-dependence on technology. So we're all in this together. We're all 
going against the grain, fighting an uphill battle. Uh, one, the Barna Research Group uh, did a study, and one of their results revealed that parents say that children spend, on a typical weekday, five hours on an electronic device. So that's a lot of noise for kids and for adults. There's just a lot of noise out there. But Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 20 says, The Lord is in His holy temple, so let all the earth keep silent before Him. It's hard to keep silent when there's so much noise. We're surrounded by so much noise. So one of the disciplines, one of the spiritual disciplines that we need to practice in learning to be attentive to God, to connect with God, is the spiritual discipline of silence. Silence. Now, some of you may hear that and you may think, oh, that's like the weird, new age, spiritual, hippie type of thing, or maybe something that monks do. I'm East Texan. I don't do weird stuff like that. But don't get too far ahead of yourself because the spiritual discipline of silence is something that was a regular routine in Jesus' life. And if we're going to be Christ followers, I would assume we need to take on the same spiritual disciplines that Jesus had in his life. You can read through the Gospels. We'll look at this here in a few weeks. Jesus' life was noisy and busy. Everywhere he went, he was surrounded by crowds of people wanting to talk with him or be healed by him. It's a busy life, full of distractions, full of noise. And yet we often see that the Gospel writers will tell us that Jesus goes off by himself to some mountain in silence and solitude and prayer. So we need to practice the spiritual discipline of silence. Apparently, uh, uprooting your family and moving and starting a new job can be stressful. I, I discovered that this summer. I thought, oh, we're going to do this. It's going to be great. But there were ways that I was stressed out that I did not anticipate. And there was a time right after we had moved, still getting to know people here. I had deadlines on stuff coming up. We had to switch bills over and make sure everything was moved and just the chaos of all that and trying to sell our house. There were times, and I'll admit to you, that I just felt like I was just this big ball of anxiety. Like, oh, there's so much to do, people to call back, things to take care of. And even as a preacher, I dedicate my life to preparing sermons, preaching from the Word of God, I found myself disconnected from God. Stressed and distracted with so much noise. So one day I got in the car. I had people to call back. I had somewhere to be. It was a 20-minute drive to where I was going and a 20-minute drive home. So I was going to be in the car for about 40 minutes. My first instinct, turn on the car, the radio comes on. There's people that you can call back. There's a lot to do. But it dawned on me, what if I tried something just radical and revolutionary and just turned it all off while I drove? What if I just practiced the spiritual discipline of silence while in the car? And I did that. And then when I got home, it was almost like something had just pressed the reset button on my life. All of a sudden, the mess and the noise had cleared out. I was able to prioritize what I needed. But most importantly, I felt a nearness to God that I was not feeling with all of that noise. I didn't do anything crazy or radical revolutionary, I just turned things off for a little while and sat in silence. I tried to pray. 
And I prayed a little, and at times I couldn't even find the words to pray, but spending that time in silence and in concentration, God has a way of communicating. It's easy to drown out God with all this noise. But Habakkuk says, The Lord is in His holy temple, so let all the earth be silent before Him. All the idols, all the gods in our world, they can't say anything because they're not real. There's no breath in them. But God is in His holy temple. One of the things I want to offer you during this sermon series, I titled this lesson, Dethroning the Noise God, so next week it'll be another one of these idols that distracts us from God. I want to offer a weekly challenge. So here's a weekly challenge to you. Our devices should go to bed before we do, and wake up after we do. So you may think, what? What does that mean? You can't really put a device to bed because it's not real, but here's what I mean by that. The normal routine that most adults and children and preteens have before going to bed is we go to bed with our devices. You can see the chart there. The percentages are high. I go to bed with not one, but two phones within this close of a distance to my face. I have one phone that works on Wi-Fi, one phone that's more like my Go phone. They both, I have a tough time waking up in the morning, so I set alarms on both. And it's incredibly annoying to Jessica, but I have to do it so I can wake up in the morning. But I go to bed with two devices. Most people I talk to, the last thing they do before they go to bed is they're scrolling through social media and the, the device, the screen is on. So one of the challenges that Andy Crouch offers in his book that I'm borrowing from him is to put your device to bed. That's one of the commitments they made as a family was they had a room in the house and everyone put their devices to bed an hour before they went to bed. One adult kept a phone in case there was an emergency. They actually went to the store. I guess they still sell these and bought alarm clocks. So you just set an alarm clock instead of using your phone. And during that time where they no longer had the social media notifications, emails to check, even pictures to scroll through or videos to watch, all that was put aside, put to bed. The last hour of the night was spent with each other and with God. Maybe even in silence. Some of you are thinking, yeah, if I did that, then I'm going to be asleep. Well, then maybe you'll just get more sleep. Your devices should go to bed before you do and wake up after you do. The average person, including myself, when my alarm goes off on my phone, the first thing I do is I say, oh, i got to text this person back. I've got this reminder on my phone. I've got this new email. And we just go from the second we wake up. But if you put your device somewhere else and you wake up before you're checking your device and seeing what's on your device, maybe something you could do to fill your time in the morning is spend some time with the Lord. Let the agenda and the pace of the day be spent with time spent with the Lord. So one of the challenges that I'm asking you to try and practice as you practice the spiritual discipline of silence, even if you just did it for one night and one morning, you don't have to do it all week, but just try it. Put your device to bed before you go to bed and let them wake up after you do and spend that time with the Lord. We have to relearn this art of attentiveness. 
I'm afraid, like those Inuit hunters, that we're losing our wayfinding ability to connect with God. That's a challenge. It's a battle that we're all facing. No one is exempt from that. Some of you may be thinking, I'm not a millennial. So I don't have to worry about all this stuff that he's talking about. Although I don't think anyone is exempt from it, because for you it could be a TV screen. But regardless, how often are we spending time each day trying to connect with the God who says, if you draw near to me, I'll draw near to you. Habakkuk 2.20 says, The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silent before him. This is something that Jesus did. And we find this connection that Jesus had with God. Such a strong connection that he made this sacrifice on the cross that most of us can't imagine going through. One of the reasons why Jesus was willing to do that was, one, because he loved us, but also because he was so connected with the will of the Father that he knew what he needed to do. Uh, This morning, we're going to offer a chance for you to find one of our shepherds, to be prayed for, prayed over. They'll be in the back. You can go find them if you want to privately. Uh, Clint mentioned in his communion thoughts this morning that if you are interested in this life-saving blood of Christ, we would be glad to tell you about that. You can come up front. You can grab a shepherd or grab someone afterwards. But this is an opportunity for you to respond And let's stand and continue singing.